and welcome back. I'm Bill English here, the publisher of Bible and Business, and I want to thank you for joining me again today. Uh, this episode is the seventh part of a seven-part series on Christian stewardship from chapter three of my book, A Christian Theology of Business Ownership. Today we're going to be looking at a little bit of what the Bible has to say about saving for the future. In other words, as stewards of that which God has given to us, uh, really the question becomes how much should we save for the future versus how much of our excess out of our prosperity should we be giving away, giving away uh, today. And so that's what, uh, that's what we're going to look at. But before we get going on that, I just want to invite you to come over to BibleAndBusiness.com, my website, where I have articles and podcasts, and also the slides can be downloaded in PDF format if you'd like to have them uh, for this particular episode and other episodes that I have um, recorded. There are two principles that I really want to talk about today, and the principles are this. First, our present savings should be roughly equivalent to our future need. And secondly, hoarding is excessive savings. So I'm going to define hoarding as excessive savings. And then I'm going to talk about some scriptures here that I think teach that our present savings should be roughly equivalent to our future need. So I, I start with Genesis 41, verses 46 through 49. This is the story of Joseph's saving out of the seven years of plenty for the seven lean years that are coming. And this is what was written in Genesis 41. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and traveled throughout the whole land of Egypt. And the land produced a plenty in the seven years of abundance. And he gathered all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he stored the food in the cities. The food of the field that surrounded each city he stored in its midst. And Joseph piled up grain like sand of the sea in great abundance until he stopped counting it, for it could not be counted. Joseph's plan, I think, is a good illustration of seeing our future need for money and resources and saving out of our present abundance to meet those needs as a plan that maybe we should implement. In other words, we live at a little bit less than what we can live on, in theory, but we save some of that for the future because we know that there's going to come a time in the future when we're not going to be able to earn enough money to keep our standard of living up, and so we're just going to have to depend on our savings. It really is poor stewardship, I think, to stash away money when there is little realistic need for it in the future. Joseph saved enough uh, grain to help the whole country survive the seven years of famine. But he didn't save up 14 years worth of grain, or 21 years worth of grain, or 50 years worth of grain. He saved up seven years worth of grain out of the abundance that they had in the previous seven years. And while it's a bit of an argument from silence, I think it's a good, I think it's a proper interpretation, I'll put it this way. I think it's a proper interpretation to say that it really is poor stewardship to take money that God has given to us and to stash it away for the future when we don't have a realistic need of needing that money in the future. And part of that is, is just this basic principle. Part of where I get that is just this basic principle that wealth 
is a renewable resource. And as business owners, we can create revenue generating assets in the present that will help us in the future. So if we find that we really don't have enough for the future, guess what? We can always go out and earn a little bit more and, uh, and make up for that difference. There is this idea also in Proverbs that our present assets can meet our future needs. Let's look at this, um, let's look at this uh, uh, passage here in Proverbs 27. Uh, Solomon writes, Know well the condition of your flocks, and pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen. And as herbs of the mountain are gathered in, the lambs will be for your clothing, and the goats will bring the price of a field. And there will be goat's milk enough for your food, for the food of your household, and the sustenance of your maidens. So if we pay attention to our finances, in other words, the condition of our flocks, and, and pay attention to the condition of, of our herds, uh, we know that our finances, our money is, is not going to last forever, okay? But as our ability to work disappears, we can take the money that we have saved and that we have already gathered in, and we will have goat's milk, we will have herbs, we will have food, we will have our needs met, is really what this passage, I think, is, is, uh, is saying here, okay? Uh, by the way, the goats will bring the price of a field. There is a sense in which we'll be able to sell some of our assets. In other words, liquefy a hard asset so that we have the cash available uh, to spend as needed. And I think that these are just some of the lessons to learn from this Proverbs passage. So, for example, if you manage your assets well in the present, I think in this case our businesses and whatever savings we might have, then those assets can provide for us in the future. Now, those assets can be what I call hard assets, like a manufacturing plant or maybe a service business that you own. Or they can become liquid assets like monetary investments. And it's not uncommon for business owners in their 60s and 70s to take their hard assets and convert them into cash. In other words, they sell their business and they, and they extract out of that business the monetary value that they have worked so hard to achieve. Uh, converting a business, a hard asset, into cash uh, can be and probably should be part of your savings plans. Now, it's important to note that in this Proverbs passage, I mean, if, if you go back and read it, look at the time, look at the number of times, just follow my mouse here, your clothing, okay, your food, your household, your maidens, that kind of thing. Notice here that um, this passage discusses your flocks, your revenue generating assets, your hard assets, your cash. For those who are in family businesses, I think it's important to point out that when you pass your business on to your children, or at least another owner, um, it's really no longer your business. And as such, you shouldn't expect it to provide you your income for the balance for the rest of your life. I can't tell you how many business owners who had this notion that that they would that they you know built their business. And now their son or daughter or maybe both or, you know, who knows how many kids are working in the business. And their idea is just to pass the business on to their kids 
uh, through their wills when they die. But they're going to stop working and still keep getting their uh, regular salary. I'm going to tell you that rarely, really works well. A, because the kids wonder, do I got to wait for mom and dad to die off? And what if they don't die till I'm 60 or 65, right? You know, why, why am I working for them? I'm working for them my whole life, which is the other question. But secondly, a lot of times these kids will run the business into the ground. Uh, I've seen it more often than not, where the second generation doesn't really know how to run the business like the first generation thinks it does, and they end up running that business into the ground. And then the first generation has to come back and fix it. And that's not fun for anybody. And so um, there, really is, there really is something here that says, if you're going to pass your business on to your kids, then they need to buy it. They need to figure out a way to buy it. And if they can't buy it, then, then you need to figure out a way to pass it to them such that you are still able to extract the monetary value out of that business, if not at the time of sale, then certainly over a period of years, while you probably have to maintain control until you're fully paid off. Now, there's another principle here in terms of saving for the future that is, that is uh, worthy of our time here, and it's this. We save for the future so that we can give away and be generous in the future. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2. Concerning the collection for the saints, Paul writes, and he's writing to the Corinthian church here, As I directed to the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections will have to be made when I come. Let's look at what he also wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5. He says, For it is superfluous, that's a great word, isn't it? <laughs> superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. He's talking about giving to the Jerusalem Christians who are in dire need. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now look, there Paul is <laughs> sending some messengers ahead to the church in Corinth and saying, look, you guys had um, prepared and you had committed uh, to give money as you prospered uh, to the Jerusalem Christians who are really in dire need. And what he's saying is, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed. I've been bragging about you. I need you to come through here. You've been saving for a gift that you're going to give. Uh, we're, we're going to come and, and ask you to make good on your promise. There are, there are times when we save, not, so that we, not because we need the money in the future, but we save because we're expecting God to give us opportunities to give in the future.
That's another reason to save for the future. So the first reason to save for the future is to uh, take care of future expenses. But the second reason to save for the future is so that God can direct you to give and so that you can be even more and more generous um, as, as God directs. So it's honoring to God to set aside a portion of your wealth with the express intention of giving it away. And you know, while I can't point to chapter and verse on this one, it just seems to me that the thrust of what pleases God is for us to structure our lives in such a way that after reasonably saving for the future, we give the balance of our wealth away. Our financial planning, and really you need to find a financial planner who thinks this way, our financial planning should be built on a strong foundation, basically huge assumptions about generosity and gifting under the wise and godly counsel of trusted advisors as everyone prays together to hear God's voice as your financial plan is prepared and then executed. You know, there is another passage in Proverbs as well. It's called Give Us, I call it the Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread passage. And this is in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, uh, the sage writes, do not refuse me before I die. Here's the first thing. Keep deception and lies far from me. In other words, he wants truth. And secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? I can't remember who he is. Or that I not be in want and steal and then profane the name of my God. The writer is asking God here for truth and for daily bread, and they happen to be connected the connection between the truth and the daily bread is really two-sided. On the one hand, if I have too much wealth, I might start to believe the lie that because of my wealth, I really don't need God. And that would really fly in the face if, you, if you've watched some past videos, as you know, of, of the Deuteronomy 8 passage, where uh, it says, you know, when you settle down and you have your fine houses um, and you have your flocks and your herds and they're increasing and your wealth is increasing, don't forget the Lord your God, because it is he, it is he who gave uh, you the ability to create wealth. We don't want to believe the lie that because of our wealth, we really don't need God. We don't want so much money that we become independent of him. I think uh, one of the countercultural, counterintuitive things that we should be desiring in our lives is to always have not quite enough so that we are always depending on God to provide for our needs. Let's not become so self-sufficient that we have forgotten who, the Lord, who God is. And we end up asking this passing question, wait a minute, who's the Lord? We don't want to be there. That's a bad place for us to be. Um, we will, if, if you get to that point, you have very much wandered from the faith. And, and you need to come back around and uh, give a lot of your wealth away so that you create dependence uh, on the Lord. Uh, this type of self-sufficiency, I think, is pride. It's buttressed with uh, our deep dependency on our wealth. When you become more dependent upon your money than you do on God, then something's out of whack. Something isn't right. And, you know, you got to fix that, okay? The pride, the arrogance, independence, 
All of these are temptations for those who have significant wealth. I'll tell you that really the hardest thing to do in life is to succeed in a godly way. It's much easier to fail in a godly way than it is to succeed in a godly way. But on the other hand, if we have too little wealth, then we might believe the lie that God doesn't supply our needs, that he doesn't care for us, and is not worthy of our trust in him. In other words, he is unfaithful. And because he's unfaithful, it's time to take matters into our own hands, and we need to steal so that we get what we need. You know, God said he would show up, but he didn't. So you can't trust him, right? Uh, time to take care of yourself because no one else is going to anyways. No one gives a rip about you. No one cares. So you better go take care of yourself because God isn't going to do it and neither is anybody else. And again, that's another lie that we have to put to bed. We have to realize that God, in his faithfulness to us, in his covenant relationship with us, is always faithful to us to meet our needs. And we should not believe this lie that he doesn't care for us and he's not worthy of our trust or respect. So look, I think the overall message of the Bible regarding finances, and I realize I'm generalizing here, but it's one of personal thrift combined with generosity towards others. We save enough for the future so that we can meet our needs, but then we give the rest away. Otherwise, we're just hoarding. We're just taking excessive savings and we're hoarding it for ourselves. Now, if we're saving it so that we can give it away in the future, you know, yay, right? But if we're just saving it just to save and that's where our dependencies lie, then I think uh, then I think probably a really healthy thing to do would be to give enough away so that you create dependencies on God again, so that you don't view your wealth as as being really the main source of your future financial or or any other kind of security. So here's the lessons from today's episode. Uh, let's save for future expenses, then let's give the rest away. Uh, I do think hoarding is excessive savings, and I think a lot of Americans excessively save. Uh, saving to give to others in need is encouraged in the scripture. Our desire should be focused on dependence on God for our daily bread. We should not desire to be so wealthy that we can live independent of God, and we should not desire to be so poor that we lose faith and confidence in God's provisions. Just because we can't, look at this, just because we can save more doesn't mean we should. So in this series on stewardship, we have learned that God owns everything, that everything we have is an entrustment from the Lord, that good stewards know their master well, and that God is the one who gives us the ability to create wealth. Godly stewards are content with what God gives them. Those with godly ambitions are led. They're not driven. So ambition and contentment can coexist together. And Christian stewards save to provide for future expenses and to give away money in the future intentionally. Uh, but they always just give the rest away. If they have excess cash, they just give the rest away. That's what godly stewards do. Now, we're done with the Christian Stewardship series. So our next series will be on chapter four in my book, A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, and it'll be on partnerships. And we're going to look at nine ways to build healthy partnerships and six things that we can do to destroy them. So, you know, I hope you'll join me for that series. 
But for now, I want to thank you for joining me today here at the Bible and Business. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you'd like to, drop me a line. Just email me, bill at bibleandbusiness.com, or go on my website and fill out a comment uh, uh, form, and I'd be happy to get in touch with you. I think it would be really fun to just to connect with you and to see how you're doing. So uh, let me know how I can be of assistance to you. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, I hope you go out and make it a great day. We'll see you again. Take care.